podcast is with Pete White from Pete White Consultancy. Pete is the man for anything to do with mental health in your business. He is a good friend and has an amazing story about how he got into this work. And as usual, I promise you we will get to the point. It just might be a little bit discombobulated along the way. So I'm here with my amazing friend, Pete White. I feel like I say that at the start of um, every podcast, <laughs> but um, Pete and I talk many times a week um, and I think we're both those friends that we know are liabilities. So uh, if we send voice notes, it's headphones in. <laughs> <laughs> no kids around as soon as you yeah. get a voice note. Yeah. Um, Pete and I met through a mutual friend and gelled pretty quickly, probably because of our brains and because of what the aim of Discombob and Pete White Consultancy are quite similar. We believe that sharing stories makes a real difference and Pete's story Pete I'm I'm, I'm gonna shut up in a second which is like the thing that Pete's most excited about um you know real stories change everything and your story is what's the name of your book it's for definitely from the bottom of the barrel back up see what I did there yeah um and with it being stress awareness month in April um you know this is we're going to be covering PTSD so we just thought that was important Mm -hmm. so uh if you heard that guys that was my cat um so Pete what's wrong with your brain (laughs) where do I start with that so yeah um I my my actual diagnosis is post-traumatic stress disorder and I was also diagnosed with severe depression uh which is now thankfully history but it's um, it you know could always return. I don't know, but yeah, my 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 PTSD is there. Will always be there. Um, will always be a part of my life. But generally speaking, I live quite happily, healthily with this. Is this other way to say happily, healthy, happy, happy and healthy? And uh, Just live with it. <laughs> um, but yeah, it you know it it does still cause me issues. But I'm in a much better place where I used to be in. It used to be a case of, you know, I would be almost having constant PTSD episodes and basically unable to function as a human being. And these days I still have some episodes, but the the, the fallout from them generally don't last any more than kind of a day or two. And the, it didn't really have massively debilitating impacts on my life. So I'm in generally pretty good place. And given what I do now with the... The, the, the consultancy work and the speaking work and the writing work and everything else, because I'm just a massive gobshite when it comes to mental health. Um, it actually benefits <laughs> me quite a lot. So, yeah, that's a very brief nutshell of, of what's up with my head. Now, are you comfortable to talk about what made your nuts go slightly weird? Yes, absolutely. So, so basically, it, it all kind of goes back to April 2011. So I was in the military. I was in the Air Force. And as a communications engineer, uh, basically a, a geek in uniform with a rifle. And <laughs> when I was in uh, April 2011, I was deployed to Afghanistan. Um, I was there for about four and a half months. And I worked in, uh, for about 10 weeks of that, I worked in casualty reporting. So I was based out of Camp Bastion. And in that 10 weeks, I basically sat in a hangar and with a lot of screens in front of me. And any time that a British service person was 
either injured or they were killed, I would receive a report about it. And these reports were very brief because what was happening was the guys on the ground who were in the middle of that, you could call it unpleasantness, were the, were the ones sending these reports. They were just basically sending, you know, this is what happened briefly, this is who it is, this is, you know, what time it happens, and this is what happens, uh, this is what we're doing about it, basically. And then when they dealt with the unpleasantness, they would send a much more detailed report. And this report was not your BBC News type stuff. It was very kind of visceral, powerful detail. And at that point, they would often send pictures and videos of what had happened. And these were like things like helmet camera footage or footage that was gained from um, like Apache helicopters, which have very powerful cameras on them. And then I would basically sit there and kind of comb through all of this information. I would put it into a report um, and send it off to the powers that be. And honestly, to this day, we're talking quite a long time, we're 12 years after. Mm-hmm. I still have no idea what they did with those reports. I'm guessing some kind of intelligence type gathering work. But what this translated into is I sat in a hangar on my own every night watching people being killed and injured in really some quite horrific ways. And so if you're listening to this, you might think, yeah, that could have an impact on <laughs> mental health, that. Just a little and bit. It, yeah, it, it did. And, but it wasn't actually until about a year later. I was uh, back in the UK, but I was working at the London Olympics, so 2012. And my job there was to work in casualty reporting. Uh, sorry, no, it wasn't. I'm confusing myself entirely. Uh, my job there was to work on VIP security. So I was working with um, you know, uh, movie stars, musicians, various celebrities and stuff. Name drop, name drop. Oh, okay, right. So uh, Jason Statham, uh, Sylvester Stallone, uh, Yoko Ono, Elton John, um, uh, Roman Abramovich. Yeah, various mm-hmm. quite big names. Um, he was giving away free tickets, actually, to, to events, but then they, they, they stopped us going to those events. Uh, because apparently he was giving the military a bad name by us showing up in uniform, which is really messed up. <laughs> anyway, that's beside the point. So um, I, was, I was at the Olympics and something wasn't right. I, I, I didn't know what it was, but I was sleeping a maximum of three hours a night. I was When I was sleeping, I was having really horrific nightmares. All I could think about was basically seeing people dying and death and really morbid stuff and I was also just very very angry I was, I was deeply unhappy really angry person and then it all kind of it all kind of culminated one day because you know it'd been kind of bubbling away and I'd been snapping at people or if a member of the public who was drunk was kicking off I'd basically give him a massive earful about it and stuff and then one day we had Boris Johnson um, come through. I wasn't providing security for him. He had his own security, but he kind of mm-hmm. came through our security checkpoints. Let's think like an airport-style security scanner. And we had these metal detectors. And when his one of his close protection guys, or if you want to call them bodyguards, you can do, came through. He obviously set off the metal detectors because he was carrying a pistol, and that was his job. You know, he was allowed to carry that. And when these guys came through, they would have a, a little symbol on their ID card. I won't go into what that symbol was. Um, <laughs> In case words. I start to fake it and go everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's probably not in use anymore, but I don't you know. know me so well. I, you know, so I don't want to risk it. Um, 
But that basically said to us, you know, don't search this person, allow them past. And this was normal. We had guys come through all, all the time. You know, we had undercover police and undercover special forces and stuff who were all armed and we're totally used to this. But when he came through, he set off the metal detector and I wasn't focusing on what was in front of me. I was all up inside my head and thinking about this horrible world and how everyone's, you know, out to get, you know, out to get me and all this stuff and kind of very paranoid, angry place. And so when he set it off, I tried to search him and he refused. And I said, look, I'm not asking you, mate. I need to search you. And he refused again. And I said to him, look, spread your arms. I'm searching you now. And he refused again. And I was taking this as kind of hostility. Because, you know, this, this guy's almost like a threat. And that's where my head was. And that's where it was almost a precursor to PTSD because the sheer nature of PTSD is there's a threat and it has to be dealt with. So I, I basically stepped up to him as if I was going to fight him. Now, let me set the scene here. I am about five foot eight if I stand on my toes, right? I'm, a, I'm, a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not a tall guy. Um, and apart from being a bit fat, I ain't big, you know, certainly in muscly. This guy was, I would say, six foot four. <laughs> and under, the, under his very nice looking suit, he was basically a human triangle. Right, I got an upside down triangle. So I don't really know what I've, uh, I, I plan to do by stepping up to him, but thankfully I never found out, and I think he thought better of it because he didn't do it. He didn't take a swing for me, which was good. Thanks for that. And <laughs> one of my colleagues kind of saw what was going on and stepped in and said, "Pete, you know, go take a seat. I'll, I'll take it for me." And as far as I know, she just apologised to him and let him go on, go on his way because that, that was the right thing to do. Um, and I took a seat on a little kind of plastic garden chair and I kind of sat there going, what the hell did I just try and do? What, that, that's not like me. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a fighter and I, you know, I don't tend to uh, kick off on people, but that's all I've been doing for the past month or so at this point. And then I was like, you know, I'm, I'm really unhappy and all this stuff. And then I went back to my accommodation after that shift. And then I Googled the only word I knew that was related to mental health. And that word was depression, right? And that came up with kind of symptoms of depression. And then I read through those symptoms and I went, oh, I got a second. I can tick off every single one of those, basically. That's, that's a bit odd. I don't think I'm depressed, but it's a bit weird. Um, and then I decided, look, I, I, I kind of been, I knew something wasn't right. And I kept saying to myself, you know, something's not right. You need to go to the doctor. And I kept putting it off for ages. And I kind of convinced myself after Googling that, that they were going to put me in a straitjacket and throw me into a, into a padded cell. Um, if you're wondering, by the way, straitjackets aren't used at all in the UK anymore. They're not a thing. But I, I was convinced they are. Um, anyway, decided, look, I need, I need some help. I clearly can't do this myself. I'm going to end up being a, blob on the floor at the hands of some someone's bodyguard if I don't sort this out. Yeah. So um, I went to the doctor and it, it was a really hard conversation. And um, they said, look, you know, we think there's something going on there. And um, I spoke about my time in Afghanistan and all this kind of thing. And this conversation, I remember it well, it was a half past 10 in the morning. I was in a car being driven back to my home base, my parent unit, which was at the time Aria Fleming in North Yorkshire, at half past one. The, the the very same day, they just said to me, "Look, you're not you're you're not fit to be here. You need to go." Um, fast forward a bit, 
I was diagnosed with mild depression and they kind of give me some antidepressants and sent me on my way and effectively just waited, which is unfortunately the story of a lot of people these days. Mm-hmm. Um, Wait until it gets bad. Yeah, and Sometimes it's too late. Uh, and I kind of went through this cycle where the, the, the antidepressants did their thing where they kind of boosted my mood a little bit and then they went, okay, you're sorted now, Pete. We're going to take you off them. And then took me off them and then I relapsed again. And every time I relapsed, things got worse. And I reckon I'd relapsed probably close to six times. And then I kind of eventually I started to think, you know, I don't want to be here anymore and this isn't a life I want to live and all this kind of thing. Started to get those really dark suicidal thoughts and um, still didn't do much about it really because I thought, well, you know, it's in the hands of the doctors and, you know, it's up to them to do something about it and just accepted it really. And then um, things kept progressing and I was kind of, seeing a psychiatrist but again nothing was happening he was kind of you know how are you doing pete and be like i'm shit okay i'll see you again in two weeks and that was really how it went for years i'd say three years this so. through the army through, through, through the air force yeah uh so it was sorry sorry i literally have insulted <laughs> yeah. him he is You're going not... to shout at me when i see him outside of this <laughs> sorry you're not the first sorry. person to say it <laughs> Back to but you're just the ones that play with Toy planes, though, aren't you? Yeah, we are. We are all pilots in, in the air force. Every single <laughs> one of us. <laughs> it's all Top Gun. It's all Top Gun. <laughs> oh yeah, so Top Gun is, is basically about my life. Um, nothing to do with changing. About the same through. height as well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, you bitch. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and then um, things things kind of kept getting worse, and eventually I became psychotic. So I, I literally lost touch with reality and I believed that it was my purpose on this earth that I had to fly into Syria because this was, this was kind of 2015 time so when ISIS were really active I would fly into Syria and single-handedly go fight ISIS like some kind of a Rambo type figure and this made total sense to me you know this is my purpose and nobody was going to stop me from doing this and that's when kind of things started to progress a bit more. And I accidentally let slip of this plan because it was becoming a plan. I was looking at flights and everything uh, to my psychiatrist. And that's when he started to question, you know, was there something a bit more? But I'd been saying to him for years, I think this could be PTSD. Can we please investigate PTSD? And they didn't. And eventually that's what actually led to my PTSD diagnosis. Um, so I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and severe depression in 2016. And then I started to get kind of trauma therapy. So things like EMDR and trauma-focused CBT therapy. Um, and I started to do a lot of work on myself and my, my family and my, my, my wife, you know, they were incredible and kind of support me through all this. And I wasn't a nice person to be around. And um, yeah, then that's kind of what led to me kind of coming out the other side of it effectively that uh, i think i feel like that was a very long way of answering what was actually quite a short question but yeah that, that's kind of a bit about my story anyway it's it's important because you've gone through i was going to stop you one point and say do you think you relapsed or do you think that um it was just constant and it was just your lows because the yeah. reason why i say that is um I, we sometimes only put our lows um, 
we sometimes forget the mania section because mm. you, sometimes when when you suffer, I know I do, my highs can be higher. And um, I didn't realize, but I had a, <laughs> sorry, I have to giggle because at 2 a.m. about three weeks ago, I sat bolt upright and needed to know how Henry told his parents he was going to propose to me. Tell me why that is relevant 40, I don't know how many years on, 16 years on, at three in the morning, <clears throat> on, <clears throat> on, sorry, um, on a random Wednesday. <laughs> but my mania moments mean, and we were talking about this because in yours, you, Pete's written an amazing group of kids' books. Um, but do we see those as positives, whereas actually they're also just as detrimental to our mental health? Pete's yeah. nodding, which always makes me feel better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is, it is a really good, good question and a really good point because, yeah, I, I, I called it relapse. In reality, because a relapse would be you've had a prolonged period of, of kind of feeling much better, like, you know, and, and your, your health is in a much better place. In reality, all that was happening is the, the antidepressants had just kind of almost artificially raised the mood. And don't get me wrong, antidepressants are great for a lot of people. Uh, you know, I was spending a long time on them. They were really helpful for me. But that's all that was happening. It wasn't really a case of um, your know, things had improved over the, the, uh, the long term. But, yeah, and then in terms of the whole, the kind of the mania stuff, it's really interesting because absolutely they can be incredibly damaging and sometimes as, as damaging as the laws. Um, and that's, that's even more so when we're talking about people with bipolar disorder where the, the mania is often considered more damaging than, than the, the depression. Um, with me, it can, it can kind of go one or two ways. So yeah, like I said, I, I, I ended up writing seven children's books about mental health in one night. And it's impressive and they're good. <laughs> it's not like it's it's not like rabbiting like crazy it's really they're really good oh, you should everybody should go buy them <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i mean they're, they're, they're being illustrated at the, at the moment so it's going to be a while till they're actually out we're looking kind of late summer for the first three to be out really but yeah that I mean and that was actually a consequence of a bit of almost you could call it ptsd mainly because what happens with ptsd is you're so pumped with adrenaline that and and those these kind of Im impulses from your your, your brain, actually your, your prefrontal cortex, is saying to you, "There's a threat. You have to do something. You know, you can't sit down. You cannot sleep. There's, and you really can't. I can't sleep." Um, and but obviously, I mean, that was a few weeks ago now for me, or a month ago, I think. There, there was no threat. You know, I was at home. Everything was absolutely fine and safe. But I had to channel that into something, and that's how I kind of managed sometimes to turn it into into a positive. That's I kind of direct this energy towards something creative. And I remember New Year's Day, the one just gone. Um, so not New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. So the day after the fireworks, I was cleaning my car to basically inspection standards at <laughs> 11 p.m. at night because I had to do something because the fireworks had basically been a massive trigger for me and um, caused me to, uh, to have a fairly ma major episode. Um, but yeah, other times it can be really quite harmful. And, you know, I have had times where I haven't slept for 48 plus hours and I, I can't settle. I'm, I'm quite kind of agitated and quite angry in this kind of thing. Um, 
yeah, that, so there can be kind of two different ends of it, and obviously everything in the middle. I just through a lot of experience, I've managed to turn it a lot of the time into into a positive, basically. Yeah, I think that's something that um, we both kind of worked on to see it as. And this is a really bad way of putting it, but like as a superpower, mm -hmm. um, because both of us have taken some really dark poopiness yep and just turned it because i think both of us are like well it, it happened for a reason yeah we have to deal with the negative effects of our brains but mm -hmm. also the amazingness of our brains as well yeah i i think i talk about it um i can't remember the first two weeks of poppy's life because i mm -hmm. was so bad and like I think you've spoken about, we've both spoken about this to each other, how yep. the brain blocks out certain things yep. so that we can physically and mentally cope yep. with, with life. Um, one of the reasons I wanted you to talk about the army aspect and like what you did was because that makes you, you know, in the eyes of other people, not me, um, a, a stereotypical <laughs> bloke. Yeah. Um, and talking as a man is one of the hardest things. And, you know, you you received quite a lot of back and forth backlash and misdiagnoses and all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to blokes? Like, no bloke is going to listen to, you know, I'm also very short. Um, I'm five <laughs> foot tall. No one's going to speak to a purple haired, five foot tall, 40 year old woman <laughs> whose kids are nearly as tall as her at the age of 10 and 13. So if you could say anything to men, and I know that you've spoken to a few as well, semi-famous men mm. about mental health. What would you say Okay, actually, I'm going to change that around. You have a son. I have a son. Mm -hmm. Very different ages. Mine's gross. Yours is cute. Um, <laughs> that's because mine's 13, by the way. So if, what do you want for Zach as a, oh, are you okay that I said his name? Yeah, that's fine, yeah. Okay, um, so I'll say that. What do you want for Zach as a mindset? Because I'm, I always get a little bit torn with this, is that I want a really accepting society, uh -huh. but something that you and I also get very frustrated with is the some people abuse it. And yep. because of people abusing it, it means that we all get judged and you can't work because you have depression. Well, actually, I hold down a full-time job and I run a charity and yeah. I am absolutely fine, thank you. Don't yeah. judge me on my worst day. Judge me on how I am today. Yeah. And, yeah, how, what, what do you want in a world for Zach as, as a bloke? So I think, for me, there's kind of three parts of this. The, the, the first is, is actually really simple, and that is you are never beyond or never above getting help. Right. I, I don't care who you are, what you become. You're, you know, if you're the world's best psychiatrist, you are still not above or beyond getting help, right? Um, or, or asking for help. The other is um, the idea of resilience, where what we tend to get fed is this idea that resilience is 
the kind of the SES guy who will is walking away from the explosion and nothing bothers him and he can run hundreds of miles and you know and he can just crack on and nothing in his life will ever bother him and that isn't resilience that you could call that perseverance but it's not resilience and to me resilience is the idea that you have the tools available to you and the knowledge to actually do something about the shitty times in life because you will have shitty times in life and if you do nothing about it and act like it's not bothering you, that isn't resilience. That's called being foolish and I'm being polite. Burying your head in the sand. And yeah, literally, yeah. Making yourself worse. Yeah. And so the, the, you know, the, the idea that, it, you know, by asking for help, you are being resilient in doing that. Um, and honestly, I, I can't actually remember what the third thing was. It was going to tie in what, what you said when you were talking there and I've completely blanked. <laughs> it has well okay how would you what would you like people to take away about ptsd from our chat i think the biggest and thankfully we are seeing less of this now than than we were but that ptsd isn't just about being a war or being in the military i i, I appreciate that i personally kind of fit that criteria, fit that demographic as somebody in the military who has PTSD. But actually, it is so much more. And um, there are tens of thousands of different possible causes of PTSD. And for me, th th this is my experience talking. I can't... We laugh about this, don't we? Because technically, yeah. I had a PTSD diagnosis yeah. after Poppy's birth. Yep. Um, but pe people would never yep. assume it. They assume it's an army. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I, th I think for me, the, the biggest proportion I see is things like uh, neglect or domestic abuse that, you know, of, of people who, who do suffer it. Um, I suppose the other thing as well is that to never dismiss someone's experiences or someone's triggers. So I know, I mean, I won't go into detail on this and you'll, you'll see why I won't go into detail in a little bit, but... I know two people who are completely separate, don't know each other, you know, could be from different ends of the country, and they both have PTSD, and they both have a trigger of Viennetta ice cream. It's in the nice, big, minty... What? Of it's in Viennetta the, the 80s. Cream. Yeah, the 80s. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The one and that my mum gets for Christmas dinner still. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's impressive. I don't think I've seen her for years. But... Um, when you hear that, it does sound odd. And both these people would accept it sounds odd. But if you were to hear the reasons why, and like I say, I won't, yeah. go, into, I won't go into those reasons because they're not nice at all, you would mm -hmm. kind of go, ah, right, yeah, that makes total sense. But there will be a lot of people out there who would say, no, I, I, ice cream, don't be ridiculous. How can that trigger PTSD? But actually, it's a perfectly legitimate trigger mm -hmm. given what these people it's experienced. Sounds, smells. Yeah. It's not necessarily, Anything. you know, I know that loud noises affect you, but sound yeah. smells. There's a smell that I get that I, I don't even know what it is, but it's something that was in the hospital the day Poppy was born. And if, I think it's a perfume, like the, a nurse and even somebody who was also giving birth might have been wearing it. Like, I don't even know who was wearing it. Yeah. But when I smell it, I just kind of go, it's just that moment where I have to then realise 
you're here, she's here. Mm-hmm. Everyone's safe, we're fine, okay. And you just, because mine is very mild. Yeah. Um, but even that, like pe- people like, why does, well, make up, why does blah, blah by Frankfurter, you know, set you off? And it's like, I can't even necessarily verbalize it myself. Yeah. Well, it's i I think that the best way i describe it because i i've had i think a couple of people in my time both veterans say to me how could other people talking about their military experiences or their experiences on deployment possibly be a trigger you know that was their experiences and you have your experiences and what i say to people is if i would describe to you that feeling of stepping out the house or stepping out from an air-conditioned building and the heat hits you in the summer Mm -hmm. and Kind of the airplane, yeah, moments. exactly, yeah, and kind of you feel it on your skin, and um, it's if you, you, you feel it in your throat, that kind of thing, and it reminds you of, of stepping off the airplane or stepping out of your hotel somewhere, you know, hot on holiday, and it's the exact same thing. So by me talking about that thing, it reminds you of an event or a time in your life. But if I were talking about something and that event or time in your life wasn't let's say nice in fact it was horrendous and awful then it starts to make a bit more sense and this is when we start talking about triggers um with with with, with ptsd and, and why that's an issue so yeah we you know never dismiss triggers because it's not only just being a bit of a dick it can be incredibly harmful to people um mm-hmm. because you you don't know what they've been through they don't know what you've been through you don't you don't know what they've been through so you can't possibly pass judgment on it so yeah, that's that. That for me is the biggest thing. It's just not the the, the causes of it are in the tens of thousands, um, and we never ever dismiss triggers or or causes. Basically, exactly. Amen. <laughs> but you know, it's it it, it, it it was interesting. Before actually, you, you mentioned about kind of channeling these experiences and stuff, and the, 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 there's a concept that I love talking about, and it's called post-traumatic growth or PTG for short and it's something that not many people have heard of but it is a real recognized thing it's just not amazingly researched and there needs to be a lot more research on it but it's this idea that after you've been through some kind of trauma and don't be wrong not all trauma leads to PTSD you know most of us go mm-hmm. through trauma like things like bereavement and you know we might be absolutely fine off the back of it but after going through trauma we find a way to channel or funnel, whatever you want to call it, those experiences into something positive. And one of the easiest way I can make this relatable is when you've seen, for example, maybe a parent who's lost a child to knife crime something, and they've went on to become a real kind of powerful campaigner against knife crime or to go on to help children avoid that, you know, kind of gang life and that kind of thing. And that's a really good example of post-traumatic growth. I've taken this horrendous thing that happened to them and channel it into something that that's positive and it's never dismissing or nullifying with the experience and not everybody goes through it and there's no prerequisite to anything like that it's just something that can happen and that's what i think me and you have both experienced you know mm-hmm. we still have our issues and what happened is still awful but we found a way to channel it into a positive basically amen so is there anything that I haven't let you talk about that you would want to talk about because a conversation just can populate a conversation 
doesn't always you know it's not we're not we're not linear nope. we go up and down and around but I also know that you and I will suddenly go oh and this <laughs> so I just want to give you the platform of is there anything that you would like to say talk about or even ask me oh oh I wish I never said that <laughs> don't worry I'm not gonna ask you anything <laughs> so I think there's, there's there's two things and um the, the first is the whole our whole idea of, of stigma which obviously you know you guys are MDB that is basically what you do and I think what I see a lot of is people thinking of stigma as what is effectively bullying yeah so Mm-hmm. Someone does somebody else, you know, you are weak, you are pathetic, whatever. And yeah, absolutely, that is that can be a form of stigma. Of course it can. But actually, stigma is, in my experience, is often passive. It's maybe how we talk about things. So to use the example of PTSD, since that's been kind of the subject of, of this talk today, is if you've ever seen the movie Warrior, right, with Tom Hardy, right, fantastic movie, really, really good. Yes, it's, it's the move. That's the reason I uh, I watch it. <laughs> uh, you don't need to tell us why. We all know why. Mm-hmm. Um, but in it, he plays a ex-US Marine, and it's not really said, but it's heavily implied that he has PTSD, or at least symptoms of it. And I I was in work once before I went self-employed, and he um, basically in in uh, in the movie he portrays this guy, and he's He's pretty violent. He's kind of unashamedly violent. I mean, it's about fighting in itself in a, in a competition, but he kind of takes it to the next level. And I was in work one day, and these two people were talking about the movie, I think shortly after it was released, and they said about how this guy was unhinged and he was dangerous and he was uh, violent. And then the other person said, yeah, but what do you expect? He's he's like a veteran with PTSD. And... That kind of made me kind of twitch a bit. And I mean, I'm pretty clued up in mental health, so, and I fully understand PTSD, so it didn't bother me. But easily, I mean, if, if um, the current stats are around about 1 in 11 people, adults, I should say, are diagnosed with PTSD. So it's a lot more common than what you think. And there are a lot more people, a lot, sorry, I should say, a lot more people out there who are undiagnosed, right? Mm-hmm. So if somebody who is maybe undiagnosed but suspects they've got it or is diagnosed but feels embarrassed or ashamed or even frightened because a lot of people are scared that they're somehow going to become violent one day. Over here, they're broken. Yeah. What is the impact that's going to have on them? Because if they think, well, hang on a second, people think I'm dangerous and unhinged and I'm going to become violent and I shouldn't be around other people, is that going to make them less likely to open up about it? and maybe speak to the doctor, I convinced myself I was going to be put in a straight jacket and a, and a padded cell. And that isn't an unusual type belief that they're going to be, you know, sectioned and no. things like this. I mean, Christ, people who should be sectioned don't get sectioned, so it's unlikely they're going to be. But anyway, um, so, yeah, it, and this is what kind of passive stigma is. And it's not about kind of controlling how we speak in freedom of speech. It's just being mindful that our words do have consequences. Our words have an impact on people. Right. That's why podcasts exist, because the words spoken on podcasts will hopefully have a beneficial impact on people. So yeah. that's the first thing is that this, that this idea of passive stigma and just learn about mental health a bit, because the way you talk about it does have an impact. The other thing I want to talk about, and I kind of mentioned this uh, very briefly just then, was 
mental health in work. And there's a big push kind of over the last 10 years we're getting towards now that, you know, employers should be doing something to support mental health, the staff, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and yeah, they should, but we shouldn't just be looking at ticking boxes. And what I see way too often is, for example, um, pretty soon in May, we've got Mental Health Awareness Week, right? And that's great. And then what you'll see employers do is they'll do mental health workshops or they'll do, they'll do a webinar or something or get a speaker in. And that, that's genuinely great. I really encourage these, these conversations and that kind of a national movement. But then what happens after that week? And it all kind of dies down a bit. And what I feel like that can start to say to people is we can talk about it in this week, but then no other week because there's other stuff. You know, there's other weekly or daily, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of calendar date for something. And yeah. it, mental health needs to be a ongoing conversation. Um, the same as we talk about physical health. So if you were to break your ankle when you walked into an office, you're probably going to go, my ankle really hurts. I wish I hadn't have done that. But <laughs> if you were suffering from crippling depression, you're, unlike, you're less likely to walk into the office and say, honestly, I feel like absolute shit. I feel like I can't even function today because of my depression. But actually, why? Why, you know, why is that any different? We've got physical health, we have mental health, right? So workplace needs to start making this part of the ongoing conversation, a constant narrative. So like we talk about injuries or drinking water or eating food or getting exercise, we can talk about stress, we can talk about feeling low, we can talk about anxiety, we can talk about trauma. And the only way we're going to do it in workplaces is by making it part of the ongoing thing and giving people the tools and the knowledge to actually recognise what these things are, not just a once a year tick box thing or let's push some people through a mental health first aid course and then not do anything else. I promise you it won't work if you try that. Um, so it's basically about taking mental health a bit more seriously and recognising that as an employee, you've got a duty of care over your employee's health, and that includes their physical health. And just ticking boxes isn't really going to cut it, basically. Apart from, well, sorry, avoiding going into a massive rant, which <laughs> is probably about that stuff. Um, I think that's probably about it, really. Awesome. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank it's you been so fun. Much. No, see? Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. For more information on Pete and all the work he does, go to www.petewhiteconsulting.co.uk. There you'll be able to follow his journey with all the books and you can read them and get this amazing resource. Again, from us, thank you. And if you have anything you want to say to us, go to the website and leave us something on the comments page.